there. I'm so glad you're here with me for this week's show. We have got the brilliant leader of Mana Food Center with us. I first met Jackie DiCarlo many years ago, and I have been watching her and learning from her ever since. She's one of those leaders who exudes a commitment to community, a love of humanity, and balanced with a calm that just makes you feel as if you're the most important person in the world to her. And I'm certain that she makes everyone feel this way. In fact, last year when she won Maryland's Most Admired CEO, she said, all of us are important and all of us are needed. During the COVID-19 crisis and recession, she has focused on leading from a place of compassion and providing security in uncertain times. In this episode, we talk a bit about what it is like leading a food center in a time of COVID and what gives her hope and optimism for the future. Stay tuned for this very special interview with Jackie DeCarlo. Jackie, as we are starting in on this conversation today, I want to just do a check-in first. We'll do a check-out when we wrap up, but a check-in of where do you find yourself? Give our listeners some context for where you're sitting today. And what is one thing in your view that makes you happy? Well, I'm literally in Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, we are on staggered schedules at Mana Food Center. So this is a day that I'm here at our market um, and uh, administrative offices. Um, we also have a warehouse in uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland, and I'll be there um, next week. Uh, and you mean view my actual line of sight or my my world? <laughs> anything, anything in your line of sight or in your world. I'll let you interpret the question how you would like to. All right. Well, I uh, recently was on a two-week staycation, and I'm still feeling the buoyancy of having finally got into a family history project that I've been meaning to do for a few years and sorted through literally hundreds of photos and then Google mapped where my uh, great-grandparents lived and where my grandmother was baptized in Wilmington, Delaware, home of our future president or uh, I guess president by now. So, yeah, so I'm just, uh, you know, just like astonished by the, the connections to food. I had a I have an uncle who's a fruit vendor. Um, I knew about a a grandmother who was, um, uh, had her own delicatessen or sandwich shop. So I just, that's what's making me happy thinking of my ancestors. You know what? That is so fascinating because I wanted to ask you a little bit about your journey and how you got into this work, whether you knew that or not about your ancestors as you're starting to learn it. Tell me a little bit, you have this amazing focus and passion for the work that you do. And, um, I'm curious where that comes from. You know, what's, what's your drive? What, what brought you into this role that you're in now at Mana Food Center? And, and, um, what drives you every day as you think about showing up at work, uh, the work that you do? Well, uh, my grandmother was a big influence in my life even before this project. Um, she uh, was the matriarch of our family and just a very generous person where everyone was welcome at her table, literally. Um, so I think I've uh, just kind of been in, indoctrinated with a spirit of hospitality um, that she passed on to her kids and, and my mom and aunts and uncles. Um, but I also came into the nonprofit sphere, uh, after a a stint as a classroom teacher. Um, I think because I've also 
I, upon reflection, realized that I've, I've seen myself always as a bit of an outsider. So I, um, uh, my my family moved from South Jersey to Atlanta in the 70s. And so I was suddenly a Yankee with a, a twang. Um, uh, we, we were Catholics among a lot of conservative Christians. And, um, you know, I had a, a classmate tell me that Catholics were cannibals because of our, our uh, beliefs around communion. So, um, there was that. And then in a late high school, early college, when I realized that I was gay, I didn't fit in because this was after Stonewall. I'm not that old, but, um, before, uh, marriage equality, for instance. So I, I think that I've, I kind of associate with the underdog or the little guy or the Mm. outcast. And I did some of my earliest work. Actually, my first nonprofit job was with the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants. So um, uh, very uh, just seeing what, why people are forced to flee their homes or how brave they are if they come as immigrants. Um, and, uh, and then, yes, food becomes a central part of all of, all of our life experiences. And um, I'm very grateful after a lot of international work to be able to to come to my community and ho- offer some of my my skills here in Montgomery County. So, well, that it's an interesting um, backstory. Maybe I, I knew parts of that, but I hadn't heard you share it in that way. And I appreciate you doing that. And it's it's so interesting also to think about that context as we get into today's conversation, which really is about this idea of pressing forward. And thinking about the experiences you've had throughout life when you've, you know, been in new experiences and new communities, um, trying to think about, you know, navigating your way through life, um, how you do that when you feel like you're up against a big challenge in front of you. And I want to, I want to think about this question as it relates to today's environment, right? I can only imagine the obstacles um, that one would have working in food justice and more specifically on issues of food insecurity during a global pandemic and disruption. How has this time challenged you maybe as a leader, but also as a person? Well, as a leader, I, I really doubled down on situational leadership um, because I, I like to think of myself as a, a collaborative leader. I am, I, I mentioned being raised Catholic, uh, but I'm a Quaker now, so I, I come by it honestly, consensus and power with people, not power over. But when it was clear that um, this was such a, a dire situation of a public health emergency, uh, my humanitarian command and control mechanisms just kicked in. Um, uh, my spouse is also a public health officer. So um, I was just in like, we have got to keep our folks safe. And that means that we can't sit around and deliberate and debate and and such. Um, And uh, but we can huddle together and share our experiences. And and so we every day started to do a huddle. And we were just always very clear on who was responsible for what. And we had a a framework that I won't bore you with. But I leaned into the fact that um, we were safe and we had something, we're, we're always called essential workers, but we had a central thing, which is food. And because I've been fortunate to travel in many places um, where uh, food is very hard to come by or there's civil strife, I knew that food could be a, 
and and the dignified and and orderly offering of food could be the um, a kind of a calming effect where people were panicking and you know a lot of the stories are about hoarding of toilet paper and but that mentality comes in and so um, we are very uh, fortunate to have a long track record in the in the community here 37 years and we so we had a lot of um, infrastructure and we had a lot of resources that helped us um, respond but it it was a shift for me to say, okay, I am actually the boss <laughs> and I am responsible yeah. for people's lives and I'm responsible for nourishing people. Um, so, yeah. And I'm also wondering if you can give a little context because I know what you were working on before COVID hit. And I can imagine though would love for you to, to maybe paint that picture of how the need has uh, changed grown, expanded post the start of COVID last March? Montgomery County is wonderful in many different ways um, because of our diversity of, of people, because of our um, commitment to community service, you and your family included. Um, uh, we're diverse. We have an ag reserve. We're kind of urban and suburban and rural all at the same time. But we are also a great example of um, economic inequality. So we have some extremely wealthy people and we have some people who are uh, really um, uh, trying to get by two and three jobs or tenuous in the middle class. And so before COVID, we were really focused on um, identifying those neighborhoods. We had some priority zip codes where there was a limited access to food, either because of income or transportation barriers. And... Um, it, it won't surprise you that those turned out to be the same zip codes where COVID was the highest. Um, and so we, we already had the infrastructure in place to kind of meet the needs. The needs did soar. Um, uh, we track it at about 40% increase in demand. Um, there was a fluctuation of the number of organizations that could help. So like Capillary Food Bank, which is one of our strong regional partners, they had a lot of their partner agencies drop out because, at least temporarily, because uh, the volunteers were uh, retirees who were at risk. Mm. Um, but at the same time, there were some other communities that stepped up and said, well, that we can help, whether they be faith-based or immigrant communities. So there was a lot, uh, it was a very dynamic situation. Um, and, uh, and, but it definitely required um, us leaning on the, the assets that we had already tried to bring to bear in that kind of what we call being participant-centered but data-driven. Like, where can we do the most good, not duplicate efforts, but fill in some gaps? And, um, and here we are. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash mission forward. There's over 180,000 titles for you to choose from, including a short but powerful parable called The Coffee Bean. It's 20 minutes time that will give you a whole new perspective on how to take on the day ahead. Visit audibletrial.com slash mission forward and get your free audiobook today.
What did you learn or maybe are still learning about community and the power of community um, last year that you are taking with you into this new year? The power of community is that is something that really inspires me when we talk about pushing forward is that there were so many people who wanted to help in whatever ways that they could with all of the different constraints that we all had and that there were um, these cottage industries of um, mutual aid groups or self-help group and it was so hyper local um, and that uh, was reassuring uh, because that that generosity there even though I spoke of hoarding there wasn't the notion that um, we're just gonna let people <laughs> flail around you know right but um, we we needed to be able to f- uh, figure out where we could tap into that safely. So volunteerism is a great example. You know, we, if people were able to show up for us, then how do we train them to stay safe? How do we get them the PPE that they needed so that they could be, um, uh, they they could be effective volunteers. Uh, so that's what really excites me and makes me feel so proud and grateful to work in this community because the community makes it possible. The flip side though, is that we, uh, or maybe not even a flip side, but the, you know, the paradox or is that, um, we were going through the same racial reckoning. We were going through the same, um, uh, uh, you know, fragility around health and the economy. And one of the things that we had to deal with as an organization and I as a leader is that we're perceived as the big food center um, and where we, you know, sucking up all the charitable dollars or I'm a white woman. And why is it that all social service agencies are led by white women? And, you know, and how do you, um, how do you address those kinds of critical questions while you're also trying to get people fed and keep, keep them out of the hospital, (laughs) you know? Right. Um, you and I have, have both faced similar questions as, as two white leaders, uh, in, in a movement focused on justice and equity and, um, the complications of, of, um, how to, how to address the work that we do in a meaningful way, um, making sure that we create space for community to, to, um, to lead as well. Um, have you, have you changed anything about how you lead, how you listen, and maybe not even directly you, but MANA generally, um, to ensure that you are always making sure, um, that equity and inclusion and justice is at, is at every table? Well, we definitely have as a core value partnership and collaboration because there again, we couldn't do our work as well as we do it without our partners, you know, a, a homeless shelter referring people to us as they're trying to transition off the street into, into a home or mm-hmm. a mental health agency that's trying to do job placement for somebody. And one less thing for them to worry about is where they're going to get their food. So those, those agency relationships were there. And what we decided to do is, um, uh, try to go to the ones in the communities where um, the new immigrants who might fear coming to us because they didn't know us, they didn't have an experience with us. Um, so we found trusted partners who became kind of like promotors or referral agents. And we actually paid individuals who had social networks of their own, kind of a stipend. So one group that you know, you, you're familiar with is identity and very important in the immigrant community, particularly, uh, Latino, Latina, um, uh, 
young adults and their families. And so we just paid people to go out and say, hey, you know, while they're at the laundromat or while they're at, you know, not at church, yeah. but <laughs> wherever they're at or yeah, um, right. this, this is where you can get some free food and they're not going to turn you in. They're not going to use your information. So we let somebody else kind of validate and speak for us. And then we also, those kinds of um, partnerships, particular with the faith communities um, that were serving populations that maybe we haven't reached before, helped us out a lot with what was appealing or not appealing about our processes, about our food. So the Ethiopian Community Center, um, basically, were, they were like, you know, in our culture, coming to a place to get food is not going to work. And oh, by the way, you don't even have injera. You don't have the spices we mm-hmm. need, you know? So we, mm-hmm. we, so what we figured out is, again, using the resources that the community gave us, we then, they would have food distribution, had nothing to do with manna and our usual sites. They would have it at their center. And then they, we would pay for vouchers that they would give to folks to shop at local Ethiopian markets. So we could, help the local economy, those small businesses, and know that we're um, getting access to people in in appropriate ways. But we wouldn't have done that if we didn't just say, I mean, literally, we would sit around tables and say, okay, which partners can we call? (laughs) Well, you're getting at something, though, that's been on my mind a lot over the last year and really trying to dig in at every angle I can, which is looking at the causes and the consequences of racial injustice, injustice in general, right? That for many years, social services have spent a lot of time on the consequences, right? It's the, we need to make sure that we address the food insecurity issue. Um, Whereas where I know you're spending a lot more time is on the root causes, right? What has led generations of families to continue to be food insecure? What has led to the generations of family that cannot achieve economic mobility, right? So, So digging in and breaking down the root causes and then saying, how do we work as, as a community, as a county, as a town, as a country, as a globe, right, to really understand and address the root causes? And it does seem like you've always been at this, at this work in some respect, but that you are digging in as well on issues of justice. Um, and perhaps I'm reading that wrong, but I'd love for you to, to talk a little bit about it does seem like you're, you're moving towards this movement, right, of food justice. Yes. And um, you're not reading it wrong. I always just, I, I try to hesitate because it's, it's modest, you know, uh, in terms of, and it's very deliberate. I, I'm always telling my team and they, you know, roll eyes. I'm a big incrementalist, you know, I'm one of those like, let's test this, let's see if this works. And also let's practice what we preach. So our root causes and our um, equity work, which we we borrow from the environmental um, folks. So it's justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Our Jedi work is around um, first looking at how we're um, figuring out ways to share power in our organization. How are we uh, able to do to have opportunities for all of our folks, especially because most of them are people of color. And then how do we create spaces for conversations with the people that we serve? And so we have this program called Breaking Bread, and it's one of those silver linings, which everyone talks about with COVID. We have more people participate now because it's in Zoom, but it's Mm. basically a potluck. And Mm -hmm. volunteers come, staff come, and people who receive our services come. And we rotate who picks a topic. And, you know, it can be 
environmental justice is the, you know, the, a root cause to hunger. And let's look at, let's watch a TED talk on the water situation in Flint, Michigan or something. You know, we just pick different, different topics. And so, um, but then that does help us, you know, strengthen our muscles of when we're at tables in coalition, whether they're virtual tables or not, like, well, let's not just always be talking about the, the distribution of food, <laughs> but the actual um, uh, underlying causes or the interrelatedness of it. Now we do, you know, cleave very closely to the health aspects because, you know, our theory of changes is that people cannot be full participants in society and address these root causes if they're not healthy and they're not well nourished and they're not enjoying the food that they're getting and they don't, they need to know how to prepare it and all that. So, um, that's another thing that we lean on is community education. And that's another space where we had a mentality for a while and community education at MANA has only been around for about 10 years, but you know, like, Oh, let's teach people how to prepare their food in healthy ways. And now, you know, over the past year or so we've shifted and we, you know, have focus groups with moms who are like, Oh, let me tell you what you do with cassava, you know, and, and it's that sharing and recipes and all that kind of thing. So, um, but when, when people talk about Mana food center and we served 50,000 people last year, well, we did maybe a hundred of those went to some of our classes. I'm probably quoting, it's probably more than a hundred, but that's why I'm a a little sheepish because it's that scale thing, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. Well, you know what? That's also some, some important humility, I think about the organization that, you know, as, as in any healthy organization that you're still learning and still growing and, um, uh, you know, learning, learning from every experience you take on too. Um, you just touched on something that I want to ask a little more about, which is those bright spots. So, um, as we think about, you know, how we press forward, I, um, I've also been asking folks about, you know, what have you, what has actually helped you do your job better in a time that has forced us to rethink work, rethink what work looks like, rethink how we show up in our communities. Um, is there anything that you're holding on to that you said, you know what, this actually, I wouldn't have ever imagined it, but it's actually helping me do my job better into the future that you're bringing forward as a result of this forced innovation, I guess. Well, <laughs> I, the, I, I'm going to take it in a different way. And, and yeah. um, the reason I'm able to still be hopeful and optimistic <laughs> is that through all of the suffering and all of the grief, people are starting to have the veils lifted. You know, I don't, I long time ago, another period of time, I wrote a book on fair, fair trade. And one of the, the topics was fish don't know they're wet. You know, people don't realize that they're traders. They don't realize that, um, they have their part of the economy. I think everybody now understands how the economy works a little bit better than they did before, you know? And, um, it, it's, it's the same thing with democracy, you know, um, whether it's about getting out the vote or you can have grievances, but they need to be ba- based in fact, and they need to, you know, you don't storm the Capitol. I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but I, it's disconcerting and it's scary. And I, but now people understand there are supply chains, yeah. <laughs> right? And there are institutions and we need to 
protect them. So um, that's what gives me like, yeah, I got to be part of this because I do not want people to go backwards and, and forget about it and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that pandemic thing. And let me still pay a, a sub living wage to somebody, you know? Yeah. For too long. Um, you know, it's, I was, I was listening to something recently that talked about the difference between norms and laws. And we really, it was, it was in the context of talking about, um, the administration that will have just ended by the time that this, uh, podcast airs and how so many of our norms are our democratic norms. We're, we're, thrown out the window, right? And so some of those norms are actually quite important to be able to run a healthy government and democracy. And so thinking about shifts that may happen that shift our norms into laws over time, right? But I'm, what I'm hearing from you is also an importance of, of making sure that there are some norms that are broken, <laughs> that are, that are truly outright broken because of how the economic society that we're in certain norms have never worked for people, right? For, for, we've talked about this before that for a lot of people, business and economy and wall street does not work. Um, and so being able to break some of the norms too is important. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a quote from one of our volunteers. So it's a woman named Dina and she started doing deliveries for us. And she says, one of the benefits of volunteering with MANA is opening my eyes to my neighbors. May we never return to normal. Normal wasn't working because this is a woman who's dropping off packages of food on doorsteps and waving to people through the window, but she's seeing the neighborhoods that they're living in, the, the housing conditions that, you know, so her eyes are open and that's a norm that we should not be comfortable with. You're exactly right. Here's my last question for you, because already we have to wrap up and that went very fast. As we check out, we checked at, we checked into the beginning as we check out. I, I get so much inspiration from you at any point, but I want you to think about one thing, either a great idea you've heard an inspiration, a quote, a book that you're reading, um, that you want to pass along. Yeah, so I have recently encountered the work of uh, this Black feminist scholar named Loretta Ross. She's at Smith. She's also, I found out about her because she's an alum of my alma mater, Agnes Scott College. Um, and she's really trying to have a humane and responsible um, uh, approach to the cancel culture, which is about calling in people instead of calling them out. And that really resonates with me. And I recently heard a talk where she also added to that calling on people. And, uh, I, you know, I like that notion, too. So there's the spectrum of, you know, sometimes you do have to call people out. But when can you call them in when they want to be accountable? And then when can you call on people with privilege or with power to say, this is what you need to be focused on. So Loretta Ross yeah. Smith College, check her out. That's great. I will check her out. Well, Jackie, as always, you inspire me. You challenge me to think deeper. Um, the work that you and all of your colleagues and your volunteers are doing is just priceless in this time. And I appreciate the leadership that you have brought to it over this last year and, and many years prior. So thank you for your time today and for, for giving us a little, a little bit, maybe even more than a little bit to think on as we, as we go forward from here. I, I so value our interactions, Carrie, and uh, uh, the regard is mutual. And I'm glad to be in continuing conversation with you. 